Welcome to Cannabis Science Today. My name is Emily Feda, and this is a brand new podcast where we talk about all things cannabis and science. If you've ever walked into a dispensary and wish you had a scientist on speed dial while you're trying to choose between hundreds of products, or if you're just curious about some of the claims being made about CBD and whether the research substantiates them, this is the podcast for you. We interview a range of scientists across the fields of neuroscience, psychology, medicine, and biology who are working in the field and doing real research on cannabis. We cover topics like, how can cannabis help with my anxiety? How soon can I drive after smoking a joint? What are terpenes and how do they affect us? What is the difference between an indica and a sativa? What level of THC can our bodies actually metabolize? How can patients with epilepsy seem to respond to cannabis when nothing else works? So if you've ever wondered about these questions or so many more, stay tuned. We have a fascinating series ahead of us where we interview very curious researchers within the field, and they offer so much knowledge and wisdom about cannabis as a plant and what it can do for us as humans and as a society. Today we're featuring Dr. Cinnamon Bidwell, who is a psychologist and the co-founder of the CU Change Mobile Lab, which is essentially a pharmacology psychology lab in a van that travels around Colorado. This is one of the most interesting ways that I've seen researchers get around the restrictions that exist at universities about researching cannabis. And it essentially allows the researchers to travel so that patients and consumers can consume within their own home and then immediately hop back on the van so the researchers can take a blood sample and perform some cognitive tests. Dr. Bidwell researches the effects of abuse drugs and how these effects impact psychological and physical health. She also studies the direct physiological and behavioral effects of cannabinoids to understand their potential therapeutic effects as well as their potential for abuse. This episode is very balanced. We talk about the benefits of cannabis as medicine that Dr. Bidwell and her team have observed, but we also address some of the risks that might be associated with high-potency cannabis products. And we also attempt to answer some of these big lingering questions that affect anyone who uses cannabis. How much does cannabis, especially these higher THC products, affect our cognition? How soon can we drive safely after consuming cannabis? We talk about whether cannabis affects men and women differently. So we're still looking for answers on all of these, but stay tuned because some of Dr. Bidwell's research is really starting to shed some light and give us some much needed information on these critical questions. Dr. Bidwell, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. So I'm so excited to hear more about the mobile laboratory. Um, but first, could you give us a little bit more background on what led you to your current position and your current research on cannabis? Absolutely. So I trained actually at the University of Colorado. I got my PhD in psychology and neuroscience. And my research has largely been in the overlap of mental health and substance use. So as a clinical psychologist, both clinically and from a research perspective, I saw very early how 
individuals with mental health disorders and mental health symptoms seem to be at much greater risk for using substances, having problems with, with substances, and also how substance use can impact and interfere with treatment mm -hmm. um, and making it more challenging for people who want to get better to improve their symptoms. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of my historical background. And over time, you know, that had been a, a broad focus on alcohol, nicotine, and different types of illegal drugs, and cannabis for sure. And then, you know, around 2014, I was had the opportunity to start a lab here in Colorado with a faculty position. This was the same year that dispensaries opened in mm -hmm. Colorado. And so while I had been in the addiction field and the substance use field for many years, it uh, prompted me to really kind of look closely at cannabis and mm -hmm. really try to not just go with what I thought I knew of cannabis, um, even after years of training, but really dig into the literature and try to understand what is this drug, what does it do to people, and you know what what's going on on, on both sides of the story of, of you know um, of both sides of the story of, of legalization kind of help happening for medical and recreational mm. purposes. And so I call this kind of my, I guess, my Jon Snow moment of like, you really know nothing, you, you really need to, um, you really need to understand this in a new way. Because mm -hmm. when I went to literature, A, I found it really struck me once I really looked how small it was. Right. And how little science had been able to contribute to the conversation around uh -huh. these policy changes. And it was really policy changes were happening through patients advocating for themselves mm -hmm. and through kind of public perception of, of mm -hmm. safety. And uh, it became just brutally clear how mm -hmm. little science we had to back up any of these claims. Right, because at the time there were a lot of <laughs> academic restrictions and a lot yes. of legal restrictions on right. actually doing research. Which are actually still... Exists, right, yes, exists. of course. Mm -hmm. And so there, and, and the research we did have was largely targeted towards trying to understand the negative effects of cannabis. Uh -huh. The National Institute on Drug Abuse, by its name, okay. is, you know, drug abuse. Of course, right. Trying to understand the harmful aspects of drugs. And so... So there was very little focus on the therapeutic benefits. Very little focus, mm. yeah. And so and through the same kind of deep dive that I, I did around that time, I, I also saw that in 1999, we had the National Academy of Science, Engineering, and Medicine, which is the preeminent scientific organization in this mm -hmm. country calling for clinical trials with cannabis. So mm -hmm. This is 1999, so this is 20, almost 20 years right. where we've had almost little to no clinical trials mm -hmm. in cannabis. Mm -hmm. um, so on both sides of the story of trying to understand the risks, our data, because of restrictions and the, and the types of cannabis that people, scientists can bring into their lab, so that's um, very low potency forms of cannabis have mm -hmm. been studied. It, we really didn't have, a, I didn't feel like scientists, although we have the tools and the understanding to contribute meaningful data, I don't feel like we had done that yet because mm -hmm. of really restrictions on, um, on on the types of research and the and the products that we can use to, to study both the risks and the benefits. So is that what led you and your colleagues to come up with the idea for a mobile lab? Right. So, and so I mean, yeah, this, tell me more about that. This is, you know, this is, was, was the, you know, the really big, I think, innovation mm. and kind of aha moment is, well, well, why can't we just bring this legal market cannabis into the lab? Mm. And CU, of course, was like, no way, that's against federal law. Um, and, you know, we asked the right people, but, you know, the answer was very clearly no. And and I, my colleague, Ken Hutchinson, 
it was his kind of aha moment of, well, let's bring the lab to the people. Mm -hmm. So they can legally purchase Mm -hmm. and they can legally use. Mm -hmm. And we can just create a lab that we can bring to them. Right. And uh, it was many years, you know, in some ways of of conversations and confirming and and doing it in a way that was federally compliant. Mm -hmm. But that was sort of the origin of of the the mobile lab is, well, we can't bring legal market cannabis to the people, but we Mm -hmm. can bring the the lab to to the people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, we were able to, you know, work with dispensaries and, and also use the state testing to really have verifications on what the products they're using mm-hmm. and what the cannabinoid content is. We also rely pretty heavily on blood quantification of okay. drug exposure. So that's another piece of how the science and the um, public use is so different mm-hmm. is that the strains that were that are legal and, and originally allowed um, for research, although they've shifted, historically it was a... A, um, a singular focus on THC okay. and even low potency THC mm-hmm. and the strains that were grown for um, the NIDA drug supply were intentionally devoid of, of other cannabinoids. Yeah, or terpenes or, or, terpenes, or any yeah. other. So it's, mm-hmm. let's just try to isolate THC. And mm-hmm. so up until about 2006, all the data in the literature is 3% THC and nothing Mm-hmm. And over then about 10 years, you know, the 10 years since, NIDA has been kind of trying to expand their drug supply, mm-hmm. have more more variety, higher THC potencies, higher CBD potencies. Mm-hmm. But again, and as we've published too mm-hmm. um, with Dr. Vergara, mm-hmm. It still doesn't match what's on the legal market. Right, right. And it, Where you can go to a dispensary in Boulder and buy something that's up to 20% THC right, or higher just, than that. Right, mm-hmm. that's just even just in flour. But if mm-hmm. you think about all the different forms of cannabis that are available on the legal market. Concentrates or oils, yeah, right. Topicals, concentrates, mm-hmm. edibles. Uh, there's no match on the NIDA drug supply. And mm-hmm. you know, it could easily be argued, why should the NIDA be trying to keep up with the $7 billion industry? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and, you know that it's kind of, it's constantly going to be trying to chase its tail, trying to catch up mm. with this, this industry that has, you know, much more more research, resources and, and incentive to change. So and, if I were a participant in one of your research studies, walk me through the process. What exactly would I go through? Yeah. Um, well, so it, we have a, a wide range of studies. So for example, when we're just we're interested in let's say the risks in recreational users for high potency products, mm-hmm. that's kind of a, a shorter protocol. The shortest version is they would come in on a sober day, do a, a comprehensive health and cognitive mm-hmm. assessment. We do physiological testing, we do different motor control tests, all all on a sober day, and then we would have an appointment in the mobile lab, mm-hmm. in which uh, we would meet them at a, a pre-appointed time at which they were typically or or comfortable using cannabis. Mm-hmm. And we would assess them uh, on, a, on all of our primary outcome measures, which typically include cognitive and physiological measures. Uh, we would assess them before they use. So we would meet them. They would come out to the mobile lab. We'd do about an hour of testing. Then they would be asked to go into their home. They would use their cannabis. Um, you know, Typically, we, we have information and testing on the product that that they're using. Mm-hmm. Um, they bring a scale into their home. They mm-hmm. weigh out exactly how much um, they, they're using. If it's an edible, they can just tell mm-hmm. us the, the dose or, or um, you know, 
number of pieces of that edible. Mm -hmm. And then they return to the mobile lab and we repeat the testing. And typically it's, um, we repeat the testing two times. So Mm -hmm. we get an immediate acute assessment and then an assessment of kind of recovery. So a typical trajectory for flower in particular is that blood levels spike and impairment mm. spikes and lasts about an hour or two and then things kind of um, tend to tend to recover mm-hmm. um, people become less intoxicated okay um, we do blood draws in the van in the mobile lab to make sure that we're mm-hmm. quantifying cannabinoid exposure so mm-hmm. one of the one of the ways in which we're limited in using the mobile lab is that we're not precisely dosing or giving people an exact amount of the same drug. Right, right. right. The, mm. the classic. And is the patient or the consumer, are they choosing what they're using? It depends on the protocol. Okay. Um, it depends on the protocol. So uh, in, in some of our protocols, they're opting into, let, let's say, there's three arms of the study. They're opting into, I want a predominantly CBD product and mm. they go and they, they purchase that product okay. or I want a predominantly THC product mm. so um, if they're in that the THC um, arm they would all you know people are all using the same um, the same THC flower okay got it so mm. uh, but then in some of our older studies our, our original studies we were able to kind of randomly assign people to specific products so mm. for example in a study that was funded by the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment. Mm -hmm. We were literally the first people studying the acute effects of cannabis concentrates. So these are forms of cannabis that are extracted, Mm -hmm. um, typically THC-dominant products that can range up to 90 or 95% THC. Mm -hmm. So in that study, we recruited people who typically use concentrates, and um, in particular, they had to have exposure to the highest potency they could potentially be assigned in the study. Mm-hmm. And then they were assigned to either a 90% THC concentrate or a 70% THC concentrate that they would then go to our dispensary that we that we work with and they would say, hey, I'm in the, um, the A group and that okay. is the 90% concentrate or I'm in the B group mm-hmm. or vice versa. Mm-hmm. Um, so in that case, they weren't choosing whether they were in the higher or lower mm-hmm. concentrate group. Mm-hmm. And uh, but they weren't blind because all the testing information is right on the product, mm-hmm. so they weren't they weren't choosing it. But it, it was uh, they were also aware of, of what their product was. Uh-huh. And so for the mobile lab appointment, they would use that study product, mm-hmm. and they were able to look at were there different effects for very very high potency mm-hmm. versus kind of your average potency concentrate. Mm-hmm. And you know, again, these data are the first data on the acute effects of these very high-potency products. Mm-hmm. We don't even have data in animals on, on these products right. that are legally sold in our dispensaries. Yeah, absolutely. neuroscientists, whether you're an animal neuroscientist or a human neuroscientist or a plant biologist, mm-hmm. you, can't, you can't bring these products in to mm-hmm. look at either to analyze them for their content mm-hmm. or even test them on um, in terms of their effects. So mm-hmm. um, this just kind of blows your mind. That that's that that's the state of things. Uh huh. Um, so in that initial assessment, when you yeah. bring someone in the lab before they actually go into their home to consume the cannabis, um, are you able to assess like through those questionnaires or, yeah. or the blood tests? Are you able to assess actually physiological factors like epigenetic or microbial or inflammatory? Yes. You know, data yeah. is that? Yeah. Are you able to kind yeah. of assess those things? Well, and so and when in many of our studies we are. Uh, collecting those data. So through the mm-hmm. blood, you can get lots of markers in terms of okay. stress biomarkers, inflammation biomarkers. Mm-hmm. And so multiple blood draws serve multiple um, 
functions in the study. Okay. Uh, a critical piece is to then uh, evaluate the blood for concentration for cannabinoids. Uh-huh. So you can see, A, did they use the product they said they used? Yeah. And what was their actual THC or CBD exposure? Uh-huh. Um, after after use, so we yeah. can use the blood to verify that, but we can also use the blood to look at genetic markers, look at epigenetic markers, mm-hmm. um, look at uh, inflammatory markers, how it changes mm-hmm. over the course of acute, acute administration. Mm-hmm. In our uh, more medical studies, we the 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 protocol is much long term, right? Okay. So we're tracking people over a six month period, mm-hmm. in or three months, depending on the study. But essentially, we're getting people before they started using the cannabis to mm-hmm. treat, let's say, a chronic pain condition is mm-hmm. one of our studies, or um, anxiety. Mm-hmm. And we can look at how stress biomarkers or inflammatory biomarkers that mm-hmm. may be linked with pain or anxiety, mm-hmm. how those might change over over time. Mm-hmm. Does a high THC uh, product exacerbate some of those markers, or does is there a certain combination or... Um, sort of that sweet spot of a dose mm-hmm. that helps symptoms but doesn't necessarily cause you know, some of the exacerbation of mm-hmm. um, other conditions or, um, you know, a lot of times our people who want to use for chronic pain, they just want relief from their pain. They don't want to feel stoned. Right, of course, of so course. So what is that, what is that sweet, sweet spot, spot for mm-hmm. them? Consumption. And does the level of CBD, can you, does that kind of, range with THC where with more CBD on board, does it uh, kind of improve the benefits or is there a synergistic effect in which, um, you know, the, the cannabinoids kind of work together to, mm-hmm. to help get you to that kind of sweet spot. Mm-hmm. So for yeah. a long-term study, like these six-month studies on yeah. chronic pain, yeah. um, are you, so are you visiting the same patient repetitively right. every week or so even in, in, in those studies there would be two to three in-person visits over okay. time mm-hmm. um, and they would be also recording a lot of data online or okay. text mm-hmm. uh, and so there's a lot of self-reporting that happens mm-hmm. and then we have sort of two to three appointments. Okay, and that's where you collect the blood and actually are able to run some of those other tests. Okay, cool. Yeah, Yeah, well, let's talk about some of the results from some of those different studies. So based on your research, and you you said that the intoxication or or the Mm -hmm. impairment from cannabis tends to peak after an hour, and then it kind of slowly goes down after that. Yeah. Um, So what are the impairment effects of cannabis? Well, so one of the the striking thing from our concentrate study was just how... um, how high the blood levels really were in mm. concentrate users. So people are being exposed to much greater THC. I think one thing that people talk about is with concentrate is, oh, I, I buy it because I can use less mm-hmm. and it's cheaper. It feels cleaner to me. Um, I dab, you know, just a little bit. Mm-hmm. But clearly from our blood levels, we're seeing definitely striking differences and much higher THC exposure than even in our flower users that are using sort of typical levels of legal market flour. Okay. 20, 20% THC. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that's still kind of controlling the dose, yes. I guess. Okay, so yeah. for what would be, a, what you would think would be the equivalent um, consumption through a concentrate to a flour. Right. Well, people are, are able to use as they typically would. Oh, okay. So, so you're not actually not, telling yeah, them, we're not like, telling you them can how only much take, to use, yeah. um, but they are 
you know, they're using as they typically would. Mm-hmm. And they're not asked to use or inhale a certain way. Or oh, a okay. Certain amount. Okay. Um, and there's there's benefits to that type of work, right? Because that's kind of our question is if yeah. you're using as you typically would, what does this look like? Right, right. And, um, and that's, you know, a nice feature of the mobile lab that I think complements laboratory studies that, you know, although they also can't use the same types of products, mm-hmm. they, they can specifically control dose. Um, but you don't necessarily get that real world impact. Right, of course. So, um, so, it, so the blood levels are much higher, mm. and that's concerning because THC exposure has long term effects on uh, you know, the cannabinoid receptor system, okay. the endocannabinoid system. Mm-hmm. It's linked, right, with higher THC exposure has. Uh, suggestive, at least suggestive link with abuse liability and okay. dependence. Uh-huh. So, but then when we look at actual acute effects, our concentrate users really v- look very similar to mm. flower users. Okay. So they're saying at that blood level, it's much higher, but at that blood level, we're feeling pretty high, not mm. completely stoned, but pretty right. high. And that's similar. So when our flower users are using as they typically would, they're like, yeah, we're pretty, you know, so this mm. is self-report readings of how high they are. Yeah. And then when we look at cognitive effects, um, you know, they look fairly similar that on many cognitive measures, there isn't a dramatic change. Uh, things like working memory mm-hmm. are, uh, or, or particularly after a delay, mm-hmm. uh, delayed um, memory or delayed recall is one of the things that's pretty consistent across the cannabis literature in okay. terms of impairment, mm-hmm. uh, both acutely and then people who use a lot tend mm-hmm. to just have worse memory. Mm-hmm. Um whether or not they use that specific day. Mm-hmm. So, and that's one that we see an acute effect of, but it's not a whopping effect. It's not uh, like they can't do the task at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and it looks similar across concentrated and flower users. Okay. So are you able to determine from the blood test and from kind of the pre preliminary uh, questionnaires mm-hmm. what might make someone uh, more susceptible mm-hmm. to impairment? Um, or if there are differences between, you know, the endocannabinoid system or receptors from right. human to human, right. what kind of data are you able to gather on that? Yeah, and, you know, these are questions that we need. We need more studies like ours to, yeah. to really answer in a comprehensive way. Okay. So we look at different uh, what's called genetic variation, whether it's genetic, genetic variation in the cannabinoid system and look at how it changes people's response to cannabis. But mm. at this point, it's not... It's not predictive in any in any real way. Okay. There's a couple SNPs in uh, what's called the FAH gene that seem to be broadly linked across the population that if you have certain mutations or certain forms of that gene that you're more likely to be a problem user mm-hmm. or more likely to be de- dependent. Mm-hmm. And in our data, then we can tease apart. We can actually see, does that uh, actually link with blood levels mm-hmm. too? And does that change with how people metabolize Mm-hmm. So we're able to look at that mm-hmm. um, and contribute to those larger questions with mm-hmm. our data, but there is no firm answer. Right. What about differences yeah. in weight or height or mm-hmm. body mass? Yeah. Well, um, being male versus female is a big predictor. Okay. And it's not clear. It seems like there's part nature, part nurture with that mm-hmm. probably. So right. there's some biological differences that seem to lead even with men who and when men and women are using the same amount of mm-hmm. the same product mm-hmm. men will still have higher blood levels okay but as you can imagine that could so that could have to do with the way their endocannabinoid system works the mm-hmm. way they're metabolizing thc mm-hmm. as it comes into their body so men are metabolizing more thc they're when- 
yeah, they're incre- they're bioavail- the bioavailability of THC is higher in their blood. So oh, interesting. Okay. Their THC exposure overall is mm-hmm. higher despite okay. having used the same amount. As a female. Uh, mm-hmm. But then you could think of all the different ways in which the way you smoke, even if you're given the same amount, right. are women just smoking differently? Have they been socialized to mm. not do these power hits? Yes, you know, okay. So mm. it's... Um, there's definitely a social component mm-hmm. with the oh, interesting. that you can't totally separate. separate okay, uh, but that uh, the finding is very interesting, uh, particularly in our concentrate users, that the, the blood levels for men are are much higher. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. So there's there's a lot of yeah. Problems. And how do you think how do you think um, consistent use might right. affect that bioavailability? Exactly. Yeah. So I think if someone comes to you who's been you know a heavy user for sure. let's say the past ten years versus sure. someone who just started using it you know, three months ago, how do you think that could affect it? Right. So, I mean, tolerance is a a big issue. And when I was describing the results of the concentrate study, I think there's a piece of this that that could be explained by tolerance, right? And so that's what you're talking about. Right, exactly. You've been a heavy user for a long time. You're not only do you have a lot stored in your fat, but Mm -hmm. you also just you're less sensitive to the subjective effects. Mm -hmm. But But the piece of who... I'm trying to figure out how to put this because the idea that somebody could build tolerance to the blood levels that we're seeing, mm-hmm. it's just, it's not quite, it doesn't quite tell the whole story. Okay. So that the blood levels we're seeing are so high that it's not fully explained mm-hmm. by tolerance or, or, or use history. Okay. And even when we match men and women on that kind of thing where they're, they're the same in terms of how long they've used or how much, like if you look over the past month, how heavy of a user they were mm-hmm. or their history of use. We're still seeing those, but they're not quite as quite as um, striking. But uh-huh. you still see blood level differences. Okay, yeah. I guess I'm just kind of building on, you know, maybe it's the urban legend that you never get high the first time yeah. you smoke, right. which might be because you're not inhaling, yes. like. But yeah. like in, yeah. in the proper way, or it might be that, you know, your your system, your neurocannabinoid receptors need to be exposed to it right. in order for them to pick right. up on it. Do you right. have any theories on that? I know it might be speculative at this point. Yeah, I think the data doesn't really support that you need this sort of priming okay. effect. Okay. But there's very little research in, I mean, no IRB is going to say give someone their first, um, right. <laughs> first exposure. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, but... You know, I think probably has more to do with with dose and, and mm-hmm. actual drug exposure and mm-hmm. how people change the way they use mm-hmm. as they get more comfortable. Okay. Um, so yeah, mm-hmm. uh, but then you know you think about who ends up being a heavy concentrate user and and their physiology probably is different. That mm-hmm. that that level of THC exposure is either okay for them mm-hmm. or uh, kind of needed for them to mm-hmm. that their their endocannabinoid system. Is just can can handle a lot more THC, mm-hmm. whereas mm-hmm. not everyone would would end up down that road. So it's a right, combination right. of pre-existing mm-hmm. biology mm-hmm. and then consistency of use. Uh huh. Yeah. So have you found any factors? Uh, you know, you talked about the the gene factor mm-hmm. slightly, but have you found any other factors that might make someone susceptible or or more vulnerable than the average person to to problem use? Yes. Um. I mean, I think that's what, that's the type of data we want to contribute, right? Mm-hmm. Because the idea that there, there are healthy levels of mm-hmm. use, or not necessarily, there, there I'll change, say that differently, there are lower risk levels of use. Okay. And, um, you know, particularly 
with CBD and other cannabinoids and, and, and low levels of THC, we should be able to answer that question for somebody who wants to use mm-hmm. cannabis to treat their chronic pain. Mm-hmm. We should be able to, to let them know, um, you know, kind of what's, what's a moderate dose that is likely to impact their, their symptoms, but mm-hmm. less likely to be risky. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I mean, the big picture is that every, every drug has abuse liability. Cannabis is about 9% of people who use it are yeah. dependent. Mm-hmm. So that's not nothing. With alcohol, it's about 15% of people who use it end mm-hmm. up dependent. Mm-hmm. So it's, that's always a, an important um, comparison is what are we talking about when we're talking about risk mm-hmm. and to contextualize it in a way that's that's relevant to people. So let's talk about driving because yes. I know the you know the potential impairment effects yes. and whether um, after whether consumers are, are safe to drive yeah. Yeah. Um, after a, you know a certain yeah. degree of consumption. What are your thoughts on that, and what does the data indicate? Yeah, I mean, I think this is this is sort of the elusive thing because right now the it's just so ridiculous how basically the legal definition of cannabis impaired driving is five mm. is, a, is a certain blood threshold right so which is very very low mm. and oftentimes a regular user would exceed that threshold without having even used that day at all mm-hmm. so their blood may show a higher level of THC than the than the impaired driving mm-hmm. levels and you know and yeah on the other side you might have a medical user or an intermittent you know somebody who barely uses that mm. would actually be impaired below that level right right so it has this simultaneous yeah um, yeah failing to you know it's under identifying uh, maybe occasional users and over identifying regular users Mm -hmm. so it's right now the the situation is just uh, it's not representing yeah impairment in an accurate way and Mm -hmm. so but we're still trying to get there in terms of what is the link with 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 actual impairment. So, mm-hmm. um, and I think we're working towards that, but we're not necessarily there yet. Mm-hmm. But we see, so our cognitive measures don't just, you know, people are still impaired for, for several hours after use. Mm-hmm. Um, the data suggest, you know, kind of anywhere from hours to, you'll see some studies suggesting that days, that after, you know, it takes three, three days of non-use to really recover to kind of baseline mm-hmm. uh, cognitive levels. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and those data are accurate, but in terms of what does that mean for real world road impairment? Right, right. And just because it's in your bloodstream, does that actually indicate that there is cognitive impairment? Well, so or are they studying different? That's what I'm okay. referring to. Oh, okay. Is that if you take regular users, you measure them under the acute influence, yeah. keep measuring them for three days so they don't continue to use over those three days, mm-hmm. you don't see that improvement in cognition until mm-hmm. after three days of not using. Oh, okay. Um, and what does that mean? So that's that's an impairment on a cognitive test, but that's not necessarily um, accident risk or mm-hmm. road, real world road. Right, um, right, of course. So, like how cognitively sharp do we need to right. be to drive right. is right. really another right. question exactly. beyond that research. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, with cannabis impaired driving, a lot of the things uh, that come up are sort of lane swerving or slowed reaction time. Mm-hmm. And those things are concerning. Uh, and yet we don't necessarily, we don't have the data to say, to make a clear link with some of those findings and, and, and real-world mm-hmm. practice. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we're working on it. I think it's really important. And in the mobile lab, we're able to do some mobile testing that potentially could be used for roadside testing. So mm-hmm. that would sort of 
improve our ability to actually detect impairment, uh-huh. at least cannabis-related impairment, yeah. roadside versus just saying we'll do a blood dry, draw and say you've used cannabis sometime in the last month. Right, right. You know, so uh-huh. the, we're sort of honing in on that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think from a public health perspective, and that's a, it's an important risk factor that we're trying to help. Yeah, and are those impairment effects that you mentioned, you know, the slowed reaction times, are they very similar um, to the ones you would measure with alcohol use, mm. or are they different? Yeah, and I think, you know, clearly we see much more robust effects yeah. with alcohol. Yeah, absolutely. And um, part of why this has been so hard with cannabis is yeah. because it's not as clear as with mm. alcohol. And uh, that even heavy... Drinkers mm-hmm. will have those effects um, under the influence of alcohol, even if okay. they don't think they are. They yeah, will yeah. be slowed down, their balance is impaired, reaction time. So alcohol is, is much more reliable in terms of that. Um, so with cannabis, it... More reliable at causing impairment. Exactly. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. And then, but with cannabis, it's, it's harder because, mm-hmm. again, as you raise the use history question, the amount they use, so some of that is, is still to be to be determined but mm. I think most people know you know you shouldn't use and then drive right, right away mm. but the question is is how how long um, is that recovery time and does it differ based on your age does it differ based on your gender mm. uh, does it differ based on your use history mm-hmm. we're still working on some of those pieces mm-hmm. um, yeah Cool. So to switch gears here, I know you and your colleagues came out with a study um, suggesting that alcohol consumption can cause structural changes in yeah. the brain, but cannabis consumption does not. Right. Can you talk more about that and what that means? Yes. For- yes. So um, I'm happy to chat about that. That was sort of my colleague, Ken Hutchinson, mm-hmm. and his graduate student are sort of the leads on that, oh, okay. on that research. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't have intimate knowledge of mm-hmm. those findings or as, as detailed as it would if, if I were, if it were... Um, my direct data from from my study. Mm. But essentially, you know, the idea was to, one of the problems in the literature has been to look at impacts of cannabis users Mm. without really assessing the impact of other drugs. Okay. So alcohol use is always always almost, in almost every study, a a confound. Yeah. Studies that say, well, cannabis use changes, um, you know, results in, the size of the cerebellum, changes in the size of the cerebellum. Mm-hmm. But in that case, they're cha- they're comparing cannabis users versus healthy controls. Mm-hmm. And the cannabis users also probably do mm-hmm. lots of other things. Right, but right. Their drinking levels are much higher than, you know, where the control group is intentionally a non-drug-using population. Right, right, okay. So the conclusions would be that cannabis use is associated with those things, mm-hmm. but not addressing the fact that the, the two populations were different on many other important areas. Right, right. And also, yeah, the concurrent use of yeah, alcohol and cannabis exactly. and how they might influence exactly. each other. Yeah. Um, and so that's a whole other line of research that mm. we're very interested in. Yeah, of course. Is that, you know, kind of that idea of, of, of additive effects and, and how um, alcohol and cannabis kind of bidirectionally go together with concurrent use. But the short, the short version of that is that when you appropriately control mm-hmm. for uh, long-term, you know, for the, for the history of alcohol use or the history of cannabis use in terms of structural changes. So this is not under the acute influence. This is not um, a, anything about the acute effects of the drugs, but basically people who use alcohol over time uh, versus people who use cannabis over time, the mm-hmm. long-term structural brain changes are more 
dramatic and more significant mm-hmm. with the alcohol users. Okay. And what is what is a structural change to the brain indicate, yeah. you know, to in terms of disease potentials for disease right. or just, you know, impairment yes. or, or what does that mean? Well, it dep- and it depends on the, the, the location. And I think that's uh-huh. one of the things that we always call for in terms of any of our findings is like other people need to look at this in the same way. Yeah. They can use their data mm-hmm. and you know, even the old studies can then control for alcohol use or mm-hmm. uh, analyze their data differently to try to understand these specific drug effects, mm-hmm. right? So again, these are preliminary findings, but the idea is that, you know, depending on where in the brain, so, um, you know, if you have sort of striatal areas that are um, affected, you might have impact on long-term reward learning or pleasure that could then uh, sort of increase the cycle of of drug use or alcohol Mm -hmm, use, something mm -hmm. like that. Whereas once you're altering those sort of critical uh, reward or learning based mm-hmm. brain structures, then uh, the you know these these cycles kind of it's a, it ends up being a bidirectional mm-hmm. effect. But yeah, so it, it depends on on the specific location and um, you know and kind of the to, for 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 what it means in terms of risk, right, right, or other health impacts. Okay, okay, yeah. and that sounds like another field of study. Yes, exactly. So there's just a lot of overlap yeah. between these different research yeah. questions. Yeah. Cool. So I'll just wrap up with two questions. Yeah. So I'm curious, over um, the past couple of years, as you've been doing the cannabis research, what has been the most striking or interesting thing you found out? And then going forward, what what is the question that you're most curious about? What would you really like to, to know? Right. Well, I think, you know, the the thing that continues to strike me uh, in this field is is just wait we don't know that yet <laughs> right right um, like every day I feel like I'm struck with that mm-hmm. of just how limited the research really is mm-hmm. and um, and how much more there is to do mm-hmm. and how many exciting ways there are to move the, the needle mm-hmm. in terms of uh, all the ways different cannabinoids interact mm-hmm. and different doses of, of THC and how they interact with with that. Um, with, with the other components of the plant. So, you know, there's just so many exciting ways to move the needle, and, and particularly from a patient perspective of really just pushing for information where, you know, although, although there's a lot to do, there also is, is, is a body of evidence out there where mm. we can start to communicate to people around, look, this seems to be you know, reasonably, modestly, uh, low risk THC dose, and mm-hmm. if you couple it with these other cannabinoids like CBD, you know you, you could start there and 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 see if, if you had a real impact on your pain. Mm-hmm. And so we see a lot of people who are fearful or worried about trying it because of the concerns about you know the risks of THC, right? Which is which are good to to be cautious, but you know at the same time. We need to help doctors feel comfortable to interpret the data that we do have Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, really support their patients who Mm -hmm. are out there just kind of like walking into a dispensary and saying, what should I try? Exactly. Right. You know, although it's very Mm -hmm. well-meaning, the bud tenders aren't the ones that. Yeah. (laughs) Don't have access and don't have access to the data or the research that has been done. Mm -hmm. So um, I think that's a big goal is that dissemination Mm -hmm. of knowledge. And it's pushed me into a new area of, of research because it's not just doing the work mm. it's then figuring out a way to share it with the people that it really impacts and right that's the, for me that's one of the most exciting things about being in this space is that um people are hungry for that knowledge and yeah there's a clear link to helping 
that make empirically based decisions yes. and disseminating that knowledge in a way that's mm. meaningful to, to patients mm-hmm. and recreational users who may be doing things that are more risky than they need to mm-hmm. or could be uh, reducing their harm through mm-hmm. just small changes to their, you know, to their use practices mm-hmm. that would then, um, kind of even even things out so cool yeah (laughs) all right well thank you so much for your time and we're yeah we're so excited to put this out there thank you so much for listening if you enjoyed this episode please subscribe and leave us a review on itunes it will help other people find us cannabis science today is so generously supported by the agricultural genomics foundation a 501c3 nonprofit dedicated to educating the public on scientific research findings on cannabis. If you're interested in donating to this cause or sponsoring an episode of this podcast where we research a scientific research question or theme of your choice, please contact us through agriculturalgenomics.org.